Would you please uh, pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord, would you take the words that I've prepared? May you send your spirit upon each heart here, Lord, and help us to hear what you would say to us today through your word. Help us to learn from the example of Nehemiah and his faithfulness towards you, Lord, and help us to know how we can begin to rebuild what's broken in our lives and in the world around us. But first of all, make us open to your spirit today, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday we started a new series called Rebuilding What's Broken, How God Makes Things New. And this past week, and like every week, I think we're reminded about just how broken our world is. The tragic shootings in Tucson, the shameless kind of political posturing that went on in its aftermath, the the one-year anniversary of the earthquake in Haiti and how little progress has really been made in rebuilding that nation after billions of dollars have been spent, and a snowstorm that paralyzed more than half the nation. And that's just the stuff in the news. It doesn't even touch on our personal struggles. Some people have severely damaged areas in their lives, inside and outside, or both, and others are worried that maybe their lives are headed in that direction. There are folks who have lost their way, whose defenses are down, who are open, wide open to attack by all the negative and sinful, sinful influences of the world around us. And so what we're going to do is we're looking at the personal journal of a man named Nehemiah that's in the Old Testament. And I hope you'll open your Bibles this morning and follow along in chapter 2. And uh, you know, bring your Bible with you to each Sunday because I think that would be very helpful for you. It's located kind of just uh, before... Uh, Job and Psalms and just after Chronicles, about one-third of the way through the Old Testament. Nehemiah is an outstanding example of leadership in troubled times, and he's going to give us a lot of practical help on how to rebuild a broken situation. At the end of chapter 1, we left him sort of weeping and praying over some news that finally hit home to him, that God's city, Jerusalem, was in ruins, just totally devastated, the walls completely crushed. And God placed in Nehemiah's heart this desire to rebuild what was broken. And at the end of the message last Sunday, I said that as Nehemiah prayed for the success of his venture, that I wanted to pray for people in rebuilding, being successful in rebuilding whatever brokenness they were facing. And I I want to tell you, I was very touched by the number of emails that I received this week. People are facing some big issues and situations that are not easy, with no easy answer, personal struggles, family needs, problems in business, ministry ideas, and I really appreciate your willingness to sort of include me in your circle. So keep going, and I'll keep praying also. So Nehemiah has heard God's calling to tackle this tough problem, but how? How is he going to do it? How do you actually start? What steps do you take to get going? And that's true for us, too. If we want to rebuild anything that's broken, we've got to figure out how to start. And I'd like to use that word start as just an acronym to kind of work our way through chapter 2 of Nehemiah. So if you're taking notes, put that on the back of the bulletin, the word start. The first letter is S. It means you have to seek the Lord. You have to seek the Lord. Let me read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. 
Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now notice, first of all, this chapter begins with a different date than the date mentioned in chapter 1. It's now the Hebrew month of Nisan, which is approximately April in our calendar. And the events in chapter 1 took place in the month of Kislev, which is like December. So four months have gone by, four months. If this situation was so critical, why did Nehemiah wait to do anything about it? If this problem was kind of churning in his soul, why wait for four months before he brings it to the attention of the king? Well, because Nehemiah first had to seek the Lord. He had to pray, and he had to pray for a couple of very important reasons. First of all, he had to seek the Lord to make sure that his heart was right before the Lord. We see back in chapter 1 the content of his first prayer, confessing his own sins of disobedience and apathy. But he's also making sure that this challenge on his heart is really from the Lord. You know, we can talk ourselves into just about anything. Christians have a way of doing that. We can justify just about anything. We can rationalize doing just about anything because it is so easy to deceive ourselves. Our motives get confused and we end up justifying what we do by claiming somehow God led us in that direction. But this is way too important to get wrong. So Nehemiah needed to know that this was really from the Lord because he was literally putting his life on the line. So he wasn't going to rush into anything. He didn't want to just follow an impulse. So like Nehemiah, we need to pray to help to see ourselves for who we really are, to help see our own motives clearly, our own desires. Pray that God would open our eyes to see where are the areas where we might be self-deceived and to know very concretely that this is the way God is leading us. And I don't think Nehemiah just paid one time. I think he kept on praying every day to give him clarity for his vision, to quiet his heart, to kind of activate his faith, to praying to give the right opportunities for him to proceed. He had to seek the Lord in prayer daily. And it took time. And, you know, God often works in our lives this way. We are such hasty, impatient creatures. We want our prayers answered yesterday. And if we don't get an immediate answer, all too often people just give up. Nehemiah was going to need perseverance if he was going to complete the job of rebuilding that the God had laid upon his heart. You'll never rebuild anything that's broken if you don't have perseverance. Without perseverance, people inevitably give up too soon. We're taught again and again throughout Scripture that we have to persevere in prayer. Prayer is never a one-shot deal. It is really a lifestyle that we have to develop, a daily communion with God. And Jesus told many parables about this. For example, the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. It begins with these words. And then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's perseverance. Go read that parable this afternoon. Always pray and not give up. You don't just pray once and stop. You keep praying until God makes things clear, until God breaks through, until God answers. You see, God often delays his answer, not because he's unwilling or unable, but 
His real concern is in shaping you. Shaping you into the person that he wants you to be. And the process is often just as important as the end result. The process of rebuilding is often as important as the final outcome. God's not just interested in solving some problem for you. God is not just interested in changing your circumstances. He is mostly concerned about changing you and changing your heart, developing your potential, changing you into the person that he wants you to be, a person who reflects the very heart of Christ, grace and mercy and power, all rolled into one. And prayer is God's best tool to shape your heart. You know, just about every day, I sync my, sm- my smartphone with my computer. It updates my calendar, my contacts, my notes, all the things that I need to do. Someday I'm going to figure out how to do it automatically so I don't even have to think about it. But that's really what prayer does. Prayer is our daily sync with Christ. I kind of upload my problems to him, and he downloads his peace and his power. That's what prayer needs to be in our lives every single day. And Nehemiah is in conversation with God throughout the day. It's not just, you know, 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes at night or while he's falling asleep. He's have a lifestyle of prayer. And right before he speaks with the king, I love this verse, he prays. He sends up just one of these quick prayers, a quick sync with God. Because certain decisions in life and certain opportunities in life are very strategic. If you miss it, it's gone. So in those moments, you've still got to pray again and again. You're going into a meeting. Pray. You're going into a job interview. Pray. You're going in to take a test. Pray. Pray for the things that matter. Pray on your way into it. When you feel compelled to speak into a tough situation, you should be praying, God, give me the right words and give people the right ears to hear. Short prayers really work. And Nehemiah sends up this one last prayer. Give me the right words. Give me the right spirit. Give me the right attitude. And don't let the king kill me. I mean, that's a prayer. Rebuilding what's broken depends on your prayer life. Well, the next letter is T. And that means you've got to take the initiative. Take the initiative. Nehemiah has to overcome a lot of inertia if he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. The situation in Jerusalem has been widely known for over 140 years. I mentioned this last week. It was not new news. And, you know, we can begin to feel like whatever is broken has been broken so long that you begin to think it's normal. We become accustomed to our brokenness. We become used to living that way. It's the way things have always been. How often have you maybe, maybe made a suggestion and they say, well, that's just not what we do here. That's not how we handle things. So why try? It's the way things have always been. No, it's just what we've tolerated. Like the laws of physics, a body at rest tends to stay at rest, and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. So you've got to get into motion. So like Nehemiah, you have to take the initiative to make a change. And Nehemiah does that by sketching out a plan. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. But you've got to have a plan. I'm sure Nehemiah spent not just a few sleepless nights thinking this through. For four months, he's been praying, but he's also been planning. And now the king has asked him, and he's going to lay out his plan. 
Prayer and planning go together. They're not separate things, prayer and planning, because many Christians don't know this. They say, you know, I want to accomplish this. I want this to happen. I want this to change. Well, what's your plan? How are you going to do it? It's, if all you say is, I'm praying about it, well, prayer is good, but prayer should always lead to a practical plan. Some of you might say, well, it's not spiritual to have a plan. Well, sure it is. Absolutely it is. Throughout Scripture, it, we're taught continually, repeatedly, to plan out what we're doing. As soon as the king asked Nehemiah, what's your plan? Nehemiah starts rattling off his plan. Look at verses 5 through 9. It says, send me to Jerusalem. Give me letters of safe conduct for this thousand-mile journey. And I'm going to need lumber, so I want to cut down one of your forests. And I also need an armed escort to get there. Plus, I need 12 years of paid vacation in order to get this done. I mean, Nehemiah had it all planned out. Now, I know that planning things out is easier for some than others. Some folks are not planners. I mean, you don't go into Staples and say, wow, my first stop is the aisle that has all the planning tools in it. No. If, but if you say, you know, I'm just trusting the Lord, what that means is I have no idea. I mean, that's just Christianese for saying I have no idea. You know, people who say wherever the Lord leads really just means, you know, I haven't a clue. I don't know what I'm doing. The key is to pray so that you know what God wants you to do. And then pray that God would help you to plan and move forward praying through all the aspects of executing that plan. Prayer and planning go together. I like the five Ps. You know what the five Ps are? Proper planning prevents poor performance. Proper planning prevents poor performance. A good plan will save you a lot of grief. A good plan will help bring your prayers into reality, going over the details. Otherwise, you're just flying blind. I know this is easier for some than others, but if you go through life with no planning at all, that's really just an excuse for mental laziness. Proper planning prevents poor performance. So stop making excuses and put something down on paper about how you're going to accomplish whatever God has put in your heart to do. And part of planning is the next letter, A. And that stands for asking good questions. You need accurate information in order to make good decisions. No matter what the issue is, don't rely on hearsay or gossip or what it was like five years ago. You have to do your homework. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and then the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. You see, Nehemiah, he's just completed, I mean, he's like Lawrence of Arabia. He's just completed this thousand-mile desert caravan. It took him three days to recover from camel leg. And then he secretly goes out to examine the situation for himself. Jerusalem is so broken down, he couldn't even ride his horse through some of the places. He had to get out there and see it in person. Research is essential. Nehemiah doesn't just lead from behind a desk. Do you know what the initials uh, MBWA stand for? It's a leadership term. It means management by walking around. 
In other words, you've got to get out onto the front lines. You've got to go out there. Before you go too far, you need to know exactly what you're dealing with because things in our culture are so much in flux. They're changing so fast. You need good information and you need accurate information. And that's really the struggle, I think, of our, of our day. We're overwhelmed with useless information. So trying to filter through all, you know, if it's a medical issue, whatever it might be, trying to filter through all the information that's out there is really difficult. And so you've got to ask good questions to know what you're dealing with. Well, the R means to resist opposition. Back in Ezra 4, the enemies of Ezra petitioned the same king to stop any work going on in Jerusalem because they said it was going to lead to rebellion. Ezra had gone back earlier to try and start to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were people opposing him already. And so the king issued an edict, no more construction projects in Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah brings it up again. So basically what he's doing, he's asking the king to reverse his foreign policy. This was no small request that Nehemiah was making to the king. He was stepping into a political uh, minefield. If he's not considered trustworthy, if somehow the king thinks he's plotting against him, he's going to lose a lot more than his job. He is going to lose his head. And immediately he encounters opposition from others. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. It's the same guys who oppose Ezra now turn their sights on Nehemiah. And in verses 19 and 20 it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Folks, all good will be opposed. All good things will be opposed. You should expect it. When anybody says, I will arise and build, Satan says, I will arise and oppose. You can count on it. It is a necessary part of the process. That's why Nehemiah needed those letters. They basically provided him with diplomatic immunity so that he could pass through the various provinces without being disturbed. That's why he needed a military escort because he was going to be ambushed along the way. All good will be opposed. And God allows it because it is good for us to have opposition. You know, teams play better against a tough opponent. It's the opposition that makes us trust God. It's the opposition that makes us stronger in our faith. If it was easy, anybody would do it. But it's the opposition that really calls forth our best in trusting God. So in God's wisdom and grace, God allows opposition to rise. And it says, first, they mocked and ridiculed. That is always the response of the, to those who, who sincerely want to seek Christ. There's going to be somebody who's going to mock or to ridicule. Your friends may laugh at your desire to change. They may ridicule your faith in Christ. You may reject you or, or just disrespect you. But it happens all the time. Anytime somebody stands up and says, you know what, I'm a Christian. In our culture these days, you can expect some ridicule. And Nehemiahs begin to threaten and slander him with charges of rebellion. I mean, they start to amp it up. To say that you're rebelling against the king is now, to put it out there, 
hey, you could be in some serious trouble, Nehemiah, if you keep going in this direction. If ridicule doesn't work, then the opposition stiffens and becomes evenly, openly hostile. Friends, we do not need to be naive about this. We live in a dangerous world, and following Christ can be more than just unpopular. It can also be dangerous. There are Christians today being persecuted all around the world. There were church bombings just in the last couple of weeks in Nigeria and Egypt and Pakistan and many Muslim nations. Uh, Christianity is openly persecuted. In China, the church is openly persecuted. Don't be surprised if you encounter opposition. Nehemiah is not intimidated. Nehemiah sort of clenches his fist, and I love what he says in verse 20. He says, look, the God of heaven is with us. He will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Do what you like. It's not going to stop us. You are usurpers and have no right to this land. I mean, I love the way Nehemiah has some backbone. He has some godly backbone, a righteous backbone, and he is not going to back down. And that comes because of his confidence through prayer that he developed that God had sent him in the right direction. All good will be opposed. Now, with Nehemiah's confidence, I think it's important for us also to be humble enough to recognize that in our circumstances, there's usually something wrong with every good idea. There's usually something wrong with every good idea, and there's somebody who's going to point that out to you. There's somebody who's going to find that little kink in your armor, and they're going to point it out that it's not the right thing. There's no such thing as a perfect plan. So maybe some criticism is justified. Are you humble enough to learn from it? See, that's the danger of being confident that God has called you to something. It might make you think that somehow you're immune then to criticism. And that's not what I'm trying to say. We do need confidence, but we also need a healthy dose of humility. Billy Graham was one of my favorite, you know, icons of the Christian world of the last century. He used to say, you know, turn your critics into coaches. I mean, Billy Graham served Jesus faithfully his whole life, and people still criticized him. Particularly people from within the church would criticize him. But I loved what he would do. He would meet with people, and he'd humbly listen to them, and he'd take notes, and then he said he would pray and ask if there was anything in what they were saying to him that was true that he needed to hear. And if so, he would repent and listen. Be willing to listen to your critics, honestly. Godly confidence needs to be fused with a humility. So turn your critics into your coaches. Proverbs 3.34 says, The Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, the final T is that you have to trust that God is at work in you and in your circumstances. There's a little detail kind of barely mentioned in the text, kind of buried in there in verse 6. It says, Then the king with the queen sitting beside him. It's just kind of tucked in there. The queen was present during this conversation with Nehemiah. There's a reason this detail is included. Most scholars believe this unnamed queen is actually Queen Esther. And many of you have probably read her book in the Bible. She was a young Jewish woman who became the queen and would have been very interested in supporting the restoration of the site of Jerusalem. 
You see, God had been at work already laying the groundwork for Nehemiah's success. You know, God is already at work in your circumstances. Whether you see it or not, you know, one of the things that I believe is that God is always previous. God is always previous. He doesn't show up when we show up. He's already been at work. You know, we say, well, we're going to be the first missionary. No, God's already at work in places. We're part of his plan. He's not part of our plan. He's at work behind the scenes already, so you can have confidence to lead you forward. forward. It's up to you to start, though, to seek the Lord, take the initiative to ask good questions, to resist the opposition, but also to trust that God is already at work. I was with a group of pastors this week, and one of them shared a kind of remarkable story about a young woman in his congregation who had suffered a terrible stroke. It left her with only partial mobility on one side of her body, but she was a fighter, and she was determined to recover what she had lost. She was determined to rebuild her broken life. And so the doctors laid out a plan for her physical therapy, and she put everything she had into that plan. She prayed all her energy, all her commitment. Slowly, painfully, step by step, she began to see some improvement. Her therapy first involved, you know, just walking on a treadmill and riding a stationary bike and then just being in a swimming pool. And she got stronger and got better at all those activities, and she actually started to enjoy the exercise. And soon she was running instead of walking. Soon she was riding a real bike and not a stationary one. And soon her laps in the pool started getting longer and longer. And since she liked those, she decided to set a big goal for herself. She said, why not shoot to compete in an Ironman triathlon? I mean, an Ironman triathlon, I mean, that's kind of the ultimate competition. You swim two and a half miles, you bike like 110 miles, and then after that, you run a full marathon. I couldn't do any one of those things. So she prayed and she planned and she pursued this goal of competing in an Ironman race. And the day of the triathlon came and off she went. She didn't finish first, but she finished. She finished. And when she crossed the finish line, This reporter came up to her, you know, this camera crew, and they came up to her and says, how does it feel, this personal victory for you to cross the finish line? And she looked at them and said, you know, for me, the real victory was when I crossed the starting line. When I crossed the starting line. How is it for you? In whatever situation you're facing, are you ready to cross the starting line? Get started don't quick. Seek the Lord. Take the initiative. Ask good questions. Resist the opposition, but also trust that God is already at work in your circumstances. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you just again for the example of Nehemiah. I need his boldness. I need his confidence. I need his kind of faith in you that that gives you the ability to face tough things, to think it through clearly, and then to begin to take the steps to make a difference. Lord, would you give us all that same kind of Nehemiah energy, that kind of Nehemiah decision-making and ability. Lord, help us to kind of walk in his footsteps as we look at the brokenness and the world around us, Lord. You've called us to make a change, and may we start today. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.
Thanks very much for coming. I hope you get a copy of the uh, announcements for this week. This Friday night is uh, Bolivia night at 7 o'clock. Well, we'll be hearing from the mission team that went to Bolivia back before the uh, first of the year. It starts at 7 o'clock. Hope you'll come and be a part of that. Let's stand together and join hands for our closing.